Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for being here. My uh, name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. If this is the first time you're tuning into our radio show, the, the Talent Talk radio show, I'll give you a little idea of how this works. We, we basically fe- feature a wide range of guests who are uniquely talented and care about talent. On this show, we talk about talent in those two ways. First, as it relates to uh, success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people. And second, we also talk about talent in relation to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today. So hopefully that makes sense and you see how that works. The word talent has a couple different meanings in the business world. And this show really looks to explore those two areas, as well as really looking at the impact that the talented individuals can have on a company's culture. My guests uh, typically include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives, authors, coaches, consultants, kind of anyone who has anything to say about the talent. And what usually happens is I'm at networking events or conferences and I have the privilege of meeting inspiring leaders all the time. So I created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue and hopefully learn some practical advice that will impact your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my guest today, I want to thank those of you tuning in live. Don't forget you can submit your questions via Twitter right now. Just tweet them to at PeopleG2. Use the hashtag TalentTalk. And my producer, Mike, will feed me the best questions if we have any good ones, and we'll try to work them into the show. Uh, Also, don't forget you can listen to this show uh, later on, or you can listen to all the past shows we've ever done from the very first one with our very first guest all the way till uh, I think maybe last week or so has been posted. And the best way is open up iTunes or if you have Android and use the podcast app and type in Talent Talk. And you can join the other 84,000 people who have come in and I've been listening and uh, enjoying, uh, hopefully enjoying, our radio program. So with all that said, we've got all the business out of the way. Let's get today's show started. My guests today include Brian. Is it Arandez or Arandez? Either way. Either way. Brian's, so we'll just call you, is it Brian or is it Brain? No, I'm just kidding. Brian. Um, CEO of uh, Thingify and also uh, Jeannie Shad. She's the SVP of Talent Man- Talent Development for uh, Lee Hetch Harrison. So uh, Jeannie will be joining me at the second half of the show, but let's go ahead and uh, start off with Brian. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you for the opportunity, Chris. So uh, tell us a little about yourself and, of course, about your company, Thingify. Wow. Well, I... I grew up in the Philippines, and in my undergrad, I studied computer science. And eventually, during my undergrad as well, I worked for a startup um, software development firm. And because of that, after a few years, I found myself working in Japan as a software engineer um, for a few large Japanese firms like Mizuho Securities or NTT Data, uh, which I did for the next five years. And on June 2012, that's when things started getting interesting because I moved to from Japan to the United States. And that's when I eventually started Thingify uh, on September 2012. And the thing was, when I arrived, I knew I wanted to start my own firm, but I didn't, it didn't really have to do with software. It didn't really have to work with software, but I loved two aspects about software engineering. And that was, one, my ability to create structures. Essentially, I would be able to use the creative process to design structures where you have tiny little elements that speak to each other. And through these conversations between these tiny little elements, you could create complex behaviors. So it was more of a structural creativity. And then I love the brutal honesty of software in that the moment, no matter how much I love these structures that I created, if it's not tested, then it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, then it's not beautiful. So when I arrived, I was fortunate enough to meet a, a, a number of people who were insanely creative and insanely motivated. And through conversations with what became my team, we were able to come up with Thingify. We didn't really know what we wanted to do together before we actually started these conversations. We didn't even know that we wanted to do something with prototyping. But after these conversations, we created 
this prototype company. And the key is that it's not just a prototyping company, it's the prototype of a company when we started. It was just essentially a, a sandbox for us to experiment with our idea of how to interact with each other and how to interact with the market. So you're working in Japan, and you said you're an IT engineer, and eventually you end up coming here. So what ultimately then spurred you to want to become an entrepreneur? Because it sounds like you could have worked for somebody else. You could have had a budget. You could have had you know, research and development or done something maybe a little, a little bit more secure, a little less risky. So what was it about being an entrepreneur there that kind of sparked your interest? There are a number of different things that actually started it off. One was my familiarity with just entrepreneurship, not essentially um, me wanting to become an entrepreneur. But when I was working for my startup, I worked closely with the CEO of the company since it was a very, very small company. And I got to see that he was a really nice chill guy who I, I just didn't have that image of people who ran companies at the time. I only I was in the Philippines and the only companies that existed were huge companies with mm-hmm. with huge hierarchies that I couldn't understand and when you get to see meet that CEO he was he was a, a, just a wonderful guy to, to work with and one of the things that he told us was if you ever leave this company I want you to be able to start something great. Now that didn't really hone in until later. What really really solidified things was now, just to give a bit of background, I, I really, really love instruction manuals. When I was a child, I used to just buy a little book. I would never... I, I hated fictional novels. When I was a child, I, I never touched them. They were just too boring for me. But I would always ask my parents for science books and instructional manuals for creating things. And the, the thing was... There was actually an instruction manual out there for creating social structures, um, and that was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Mm-hmm. And after reading that and seeing, hey, social structures can be engineered, I was like, I want to engineer my own social structures. That sounds like a fun thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> So that's when I actually started wanting to create a company. It didn't matter what type of company it was. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be able to create something, that uh, a structure where people can be creative and have fun and essentially keep on developing myself as a person. So, so you've kind of you know, identified, you, you found something you wanted to do, you identified that you wanted to be an entrepreneur, and it sounds like there was something almost magical or intriguing about this whole process and the social structures you talked about. But... You probably also ran into a few challenges. Was there something that really kind of hit you that you really had to overcome that was a problem in, in that, that you weren't, maybe that you weren't expecting? There were a number of things. One, I was too nice and too trusting. And I didn't have the right filters in place to understand what things would take up more time um, and what things are actually detrimental um, for my business. And there, I'm not saying that um, there are a lot of wolves hiding or sharks hiding in the dark. There are a lot of really, really great people who truly want to help your company, but they don't have your context and your responsibility is to actually filter what they say and integrate it into yourself and not take what they say at face value. And some of the problems that I've been having is there were a number of times where I, I, I would just try to implement somebody's advice without first consulting my team or without first asking myself, is this really um, the kind of direction we want to go? And that's really, really bad for me because this whole team is is magical just because of the conversations that we have within the team. It's, it's essentially the design and creative process on every single aspect of it. Even on creating the business or creating a new business unit, it's was designed using the design process. We would have these conversations, which through these conversations would be polished, and then through testing would be polished further. Um, And then it's an iterative cycle where we're comfortable making mistakes. And if I did not consult my team, and if I did not have them at every single point of the process, at every single thing that we do, then it's really, really bad for me. And one of my hugest mistakes was to not involve my team on certain aspects of the business. Mm -hmm. So was there also then maybe some things that were rewarding that were maybe a surprise or that you really you weren't expecting to really be you know kind of I guess you had some experiences right with that you worked with an entrepreneur in a startup but once you start doing it yourself sometimes there's some surprises there that maybe you go oh that that's kind of cool one was it worked and two was I was just having a discussion with my employees the couple a few weeks ago 
and it was this huge love fest. They, they were so thankful that I that that that, that we, we started this and that we were doing this for them, and that their experience on their previous employers was not the, the best situation for their personal growth. And they were just having a lot of fun, and they didn't realize that they could have fun doing work. And right. that surprised me, because I thought that's the de facto. You're supposed to have fun doing work, but that's because I've always been working in a startup. And... I've always had bosses who were always just pushing, have fun, be creative, do what you need to do so that you could give us the best work that you can. And if you make mistakes, share it with the people so that you could iterate on it and that's so that everybody can learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing when um, you get people that are going to become from those really rigid environments. I think in uh, Leaders Eat last uh, book, the latest book by Simon Sinek, he gives this example about, you know, uh, this. CEO kind of observing a group of people at a table, and they were um, doing something like with NCAA basketball. It was before work started, and they were happy, and they were animated, and they were, you know, really enjoying each other. And as soon as, like, the bell rang and it was time, you know, the horn blew or whatever to go on the line, they all got up. They all, their facial expressions went just dull. Their emotions went dull, and they all just sort of, like, walked almost like zombies off to the thing. And it was like, and that was when you realized that there was no fun in the actual work, they had their fun before work. And as soon as work started, work was not fun. It was not enjoyable. And that's like almost something like, how can that not be? How can you even exist for me? How can you even exist in something if you don't find it at some level fun or enjoyable or whatever? And um, I, I think you, what you're describing is that maybe for you, you were lucky it always had been. And you brought in these group of people that maybe had been mistreated or misguided. Absolutely. or Yeah, you know, and, and now all of a sudden they have great opportunity to to experience a better culture. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm wondering, um, with, with uh, having a small team, you know, that works with you at, at Thingify, what is that you looked for when you were trying to identify talent that would kind of move your company in the right direction? Was it- Now, there are two key things. Um, at least one key thing with us being a very small company is we all had to be jacks. And by jack, I mean we had to all be jack-of-all-trades in that, we were comfortable wearing multiple hats and we were almost happy wearing multiple hats. We can't just wear one hat for too long. And that's really important because I would ask the employees to do something that is, is would not even have been expected in their job description. We're always growing, we're always changing, and they have to be comfortable with that change and they have to be comfortable switching roles on a dime. Um, but the other thing which is important, and the, the jack straight is only important while we're small, but as we grow, one other thing has to remain important, even though a lot of people specialize, and that is they all have to have a creative streak, because that's something that you can't teach people. One, they have to be a great person, and they have to have a creative streak. I'm sorry, that's three things now. <laughs> but one, you can't teach a person to be a good person. If, if they're a jerk, they'll, they'll always be a jerk. And you can't teach a person to just be creative or be comfortable with their creativity because they'll always be searching for that if they're naturally inclined to be creative. It doesn't matter how they're creative. It doesn't matter if it's visual, if it's structural, if it's they're creative with words, if they're really good with a wordsmithing. It doesn't matter so long as they have a creative streak that we could teach them everything else, just not those two things. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of what you identify as part of your culture then? Is this that idea of creativity or is there more that goes into it than that? Well, it kind of is in that um, with creativity, you're expected to be able to test your ideas and make mistakes. And when you actually test your ideas with either your market or with what specific metric you're testing your idea against, you would believe the metric and you would work on it and you wouldn't be afraid of the mistakes that you're making. And that's part of the design process and part of the creative process and something that I would really like to enforce in my company. And I had lunch with you earlier today and you were mentioning how your Culture, when, when you started your company, you also started with a number, just a, a group of great friends, and you already had a culture built in. And your culture, you essentially had to change your culture moving forward. Can you tell me, can you reiterate that? Because I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we really talked about, you know, my culture was built around that we knew each other, that people knew me. Um, I had, you know, and, and still have, you know, I have friends in the business, family in the business. And so, but when the culture was, that's what it was 
when new people came in who weren't friends and that weren't family or didn't know me somehow, some way, it became very difficult for them to integrate into the company, difficult for them to get information they needed to know, and difficult for them to to feel a part of the team. It was almost like a click in, in school, right? I mean, new kid shows up and there's like the clicks that have been going on since like kindergarten that they just can't penetrate. And that at some level, that's what we were seeing. And so there were a lot of other reasons why we made changes to our culture as well for growth and for long-term stability. But that was one of the biggest that we couldn't sustain it. Yeah. You know, having this, why we all know each other culture isn't sustainable because I only know so many people and I only have so many family members. I can't bring them all into the company. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if we're going to grow and we're going to be a successful success in our industry, I'm going to need to bring in other great talented people who I've never met, you know, that can bring in new ideas, have new perspectives that don't think the way we think that will challenge our preconceived notions and, you know, really help us go in, in a better way. And like you said, be creative in whatever margin, way that is. So, yeah, that was a really important uh, part. And that maybe I know for you, you've got people in your company that you know well or that you knew before. So maybe something you'll have to go through as well Absolutely. at some point. I'm really hoping that um, we'd be able to retain the best parts of our culture, though, mm-hmm. which is why at this point in time, I'm picking out what are the most fundamental things that actually make us happiest as a team Mm -hmm. Um, and one of those things is our ability to be open with our mistakes and if we didn't have that specific trait then we wouldn't be able to remain creative because we'd just be hiding from the group and we wouldn't be able to share the great Mm -hmm. things that we've done because we're not open with the the, the bad things that we've done and one of the things I'm trying to do to foster this and I'm taking a page off of Kim Shepard's book here is just using a... That's the bite me school of management. Yeah. I'm going to give her a plug, okay? Yes, absolutely. It's She talks about the boo-boo card um, where everybody is competing to talk about the... the, the competing on a list to try to figure out who had the most mistakes in the month and who can share their mistakes and learn from these mistakes. And we have a list called the Goofy List. And the goofiest of us all would get a $25 BevMo card at the end of the month. Uh, so essentially, it's an incentive to actually share your mistakes, share your learning, so that the rest of the team does not have to make the same mistakes. And if they do, they have to, well, it gives them an excuse to win the BevMo card. But generally, we, we want to make sure that we have this culture for being open about our mistakes and, and, and picking on other people's, not, 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 not essentially uh, in a detrimental fashion, picking on other people's mistakes, but actually celebrating it, celebrating change and celebrating learning. Um, And I want to be able to retain that. So hopefully nobody says that their mistake was operating the 3D printing machine after spending their BevMo card on their lunch hour. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they have to call in HR for that one. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about what some of your concerns are as you continue to grow. And I know you have kind of lots of things going on, different compartments in your company. You've now spun off one part into something else. So do you have some concerns, maybe on a high level, that you think you're going to have to deal with in the coming months or years as your, if your company, if you're able to, to steer to success and profitability over a long period of time? As much as I want to keep the company very creative and I want to have a crew, every single level in the company have a creative streak, I don't know if I'll be able to manage or if my team will be able to manage or create a structure to manage that many creatives because because they're creative and they're questioning everything, they can be a very, very rowdy bunch. And that might be something that I that, that I would value, but I have to find a way to make that valuable for our customers as well. Mm-hmm. Because if somebody comes over and then you have a large number of people who have massive conversations and debates about their product and they, they stop having a voice because there's so many voices in the room, right. that's detrimental as well. So I need to make sure that we, cre- we we remain creative while finding ways to manage this creativity. Because even with a small team, you have so many amazing arguments. Yeah, And I love it, but... The, the bigger the team grows, um, these arguments might scale as well. Well, the good thing is there's some there's some good models out there for that you could look at that you know certainly have people have dealt with that problem before you know with having that many creatives. But you may also look at the school system because 
teachers which expect a orderly and, uh, and you know a professional classroom. If you get a room full of teachers together, they don't they they just talk. They don't they don't listen. They they don't be quiet. They literally are the opposite of what they expect their their kids to be. Which I always find my wife's a teacher. I find it amazing. You have a room full of teachers just talking. One's like doing something else. They get up and it's like they're the. Uh, it's, it's chaos, and so I don't know how they ever get anything done, but they seem to. So there may be a model there as well. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so really, you know, being able to ensure you keep your creativity, but without squashing those those voices by having too much, almost too much chatter. It's like it, it's like getting on a conference call with fifty people instead of five, right? Yes. I mean, you know, you have background noise and someone's dog, and you got to, you know. It's amazing when you get on 50 people on a call how, how much background noise there can be. And you're kind of almost the same thing. You get that many people in a room trying to be creative, it can be difficult. Absolutely. Yeah, you'll have to definitely look at some of those different models. But but I can't really filter out the people who might have an important voice. Because one of my other fears is that I'm, I only bring in the people who think the same. And although it reduces the amount of arguments, it also reduces the amount of perspectives that you have right. on a certain issue. Yeah, and that, and that can be a challenge. I mean, that's, I think, one of the largest areas that companies have a problem with is they want people who will fit in their culture, and they want people who can do a certain thing and, and have a particular skill set and all these things, but they may not think differently enough to help the company be viable long term. Yes. And that's, that's really important. And it really depends on what you mean by fitting in with the culture. Because if the culture is about, when you say fitting in with the culture, does it mean they're all complacent and nice and happy with each other and they're not having these arguments? Or well, I guess it sounds like in your case that they're <laughs> yelling and screaming their exactly. ideas, right? And they have to. Right. It's really, really important for the creative process because through that process, we'll have the most important conversations and we'll bring out the biggest issues. Right. So do you, do you view alignment of culture as being something that's important for a company? regardless of the company and regardless of what that culture is? I think it's completely opposite in that it, it, it's the culture that builds the company. I, it, it might be different if you're just a single person who built a company on your own and eventually you brought people in because the culture is just about how you think. But if you already had a group of people who built the company through conversations within the within the group and then built the company from those conversations, I think the, the, the culture already built the company. And as you grow the culture, as the culture matures and as the relationships within the culture and to the um, customers evolve, um, the company will grow as well. And mm-hmm. it, 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 when you manage the culture and when you manage the growth of the culture, you're essentially managing the growth of the company. Because I was reading this book, I, I completely forgot um, what it was, but um, it talked about how the, the, the biggest boon for the, um, a CEO's business was his, the CEO's personal development. And that may be true if you have a top-down model where all of the decisions are made by the CEO, but if all of the decisions are made by the team, then the team has to mature and the team has to develop, and we have to find ways to constantly facilitate this cultural development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some argument, though, that as they're growing and as that's happening, the leader itself has to continue to grow and be a, almost in a mentor position or in a, you know, to, to really to really show them where to go. It doesn't have to be top-down, like you said, but yeah. And one of the other concerns we've had people talk about on the show is if the culture itself is too is fed too much by the employees at large, that it start, can start to grow a second head. That, oh, yeah. that then you can start to have a problem with if you're not managing it, and then you have to cut that whole head off. That is a cause for concern. <laughs> yeah. What's fascinating so. about our model, though, is we're using Thingify as a core. Um, mm-hmm. We're essentially a product development, product design group. And if any of our members, and we actually encourage this in our meetings, if any of our members want to do something new, they use Thingify as a resource um, for their merchandising needs and for their product development needs and for their creative needs. Um, And then they go ahead and create their own business. Um, So it gives them a lot of empowerment. It it gives them a lot of empowerment, but it keeps on feeding Thingify because their business uses our business exclusively. Right, right. Uh, It's almost like a little mini think tank or, uh, you know... uh, Kind of an incubator of sorts for. We actually call it the Think Tank. Yeah, Think Tank. We also have like a store on Amazon, and which which we call the Think Podium. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. As long as someone can spell it. Oh no, the Think Podium. Sorry, (laughs) Think Podium. Yeah. So uh, one last question before we go here, I wanted to find out uh, what book are you reading right now. I am okay. 
I generally like having little snippets of bite-sized uh, phrases of value. So I love listening to, or I love reading Seth Godin's blog, mm-hmm. um, which I get in a newsletter every so often. But on my the, the long form reads that I'm reading right now, I'm still on reading Good to Great by Jim Collins, mm-hmm. um, which I find it, it, it essentially the same as um, Seth Godin's blog, where I, I take a bite sized chunk of it and then I digest it for the rest of the day. With Good to Great, there's so much information and it's so rich that. I can't do it justice if I just read it right. um, habitually every night. I have to take a chunk of it and then keep digesting it for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and only then can I feel that I'm okay progressing forward. And I, I love books like that yeah. because it forces me to think. And yeah. I could just pick it up at any given day and open to a random page and there'd be something of value. Yeah, and it's one, definitely one of those books you could take a long time to read, that's for sure. So um, I really appreciate you being on the show. I want to make sure, uh, how can people find out more about uh, your company if they're interested? Well, you could call 949-236-1410, or you could visit us at thingify.net. Thingify.net, and that's T-H-I-N-G-I-F-Y.net, and they uh, specialize in 3D printing and more. So if you're interested, uh, give them... uh, Give them a shout or check out their website. Again, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate you being here and uh, sharing everything about your company. Thank you for the opportunity, Chris. All right. Uh, Jeannie Shad will be coming up after this quick commercial break. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news? Or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Imagine how it would feel to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the clients we serve at Working Wardrobes. Men, women, veterans, young adults. Our clients want desperately to put their lives back together. They want to get on the road to success again. With our help, they'll make it. What does Working Wardrobes do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit. And we get clients placed in jobs. Then we get to hear our four favorite words. I got the job. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. WorkingWardrobes.org. To donate, to volunteer, to invest, to hire clients. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of this show and listen to all the past shows by visiting uh, lots of different ways you can do it. octalkradio.net and click on the Shows tab. You can also go to talenttalkradio.com and you can join the other, it was 82, 83,000 people that have been uh, interacting with the show via the podcast. So we really appreciate your support and uh, taking a listen whenever it's convenient for you. My next guest is uh, Jeannie Shad. She's the SVP of Talent Management for Lee. Is it Hetch? Hecht. Hecht. Excuse mm-hmm. me. I, if I don't mess up something on the show once a week, you know, like hell's going to freeze over <laughs> or something. So, uh, uh, Lee Hecht Harrison. So, uh, don't forget you can uh, tweet your questions live for Jeannie right now by sending them to at peopleg2 and use that hashtag Talent Talk. So, Jeannie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, of course, your company. Sure. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. So uh, I work for Lee Hecht Harrison. We are a talent mobility company, which means we help companies to 
um, put their people to work, both internally and externally in the company, as well as to move them around in the organization and to develop them to do that. And I've been with them for four years. Uh, quite a long and winding road of a career to get me there, but uh, thrilled to be in the position to lead their talent development practice. Uh, it helps me to uh, do be quite engaged, and uh, I have the best job in the world where I get to help people be happy in their jobs. So do you find that that's, uh, I'm sure we'll get into this more, uh, but de- bit deeper here, but is that always the, the case, or do you find this sometimes a challenge to get people to realize where they might be happiest? Well, we wouldn't be a thriving business if there wasn't a challenge. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. There are, there are no shortage of, ta- of challenges out there. The, um, when it comes to business and getting the work done, the work can only be done through the people. Mm-hmm. And especially in the new economy, when so much of it is about what's in our brains and in our heads versus what we do with our hands. You know, right. in an old industrial economy, you could replace a person on an assembly line pretty easily. Right now, when you go to Silicon Valley, they're saying that their number one priority is their people. And mm-hmm. it has to be their people. Um, but people are human beings, and um, they work like human beings, and they work with human emotions. So there are always challenges, especially in uh, working with individual contributors who become managers and getting them to focus uh, as a manager and getting them to think like a manager and operate as a manager. That's always a challenge. So I, I think you said you know that you maybe if I'm quoting you correctly, you really truly kind of enjoy this work that you're doing. Are there particular parts of this that you really find enjoyable that when you wake, I guess when you wake up at the beginning of the day that you, you know you're going to be able to do one or two of these things today and it's going to make you happy? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as a consulting company, we get the great advantage of um, working with multiple companies. So every day I'm working with probably three or four different organizations. Mm-hmm. And so what I really love about that is being able to be on top of the trends, to go into one client organization and hear them say something and say, you know, I just heard somebody say that yesterday. And here's what they're doing about it. And here's how we are evolving our business to make sure that we're getting you what you need in that situation. So um, what I really love is being able to put the pieces together. It's, It's like a big puzzle. Right. You also mentioned a kind of a windy road to, to where you are now. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess you had a, a background even in radio, so both I as a did. on-air personality and behind the scenes. So what is it that took you from that role and moved you down the path to where you currently are now? A long, long road. But uh, <laughs> to take a 20-year story and make it short, I grew up in the radio business. My parents owned a radio station mm-hmm. in a small town in Iowa. And I worked for them from the time I could legally get an FCC license, which was at age 14. I was in eighth grade when I first went behind a microphone Um, and did that all through high school and college. That was my job. So while my friends were working at McDonald's, I was going off to do a weekend six-hour-long air shift. Um, So it was... Was uh, that like, were you spinning records or what were you doing? Yeah, yeah, spinning records, doing news, a little little of each, absolutely, and uh, loved it. And somewhere in college, I I realized that I probably needed to get involved in the business end of it. So I switched Mm -hmm. my major to be more on the business end. But fast forward a few years, I got into the advertising industry out of that. And I worked for a great ad agency, hired by a great leader, and I changed leaders. And in the process, I was acquired by somebody that I just didn't have a good fit with. And within a few months, I was let go from the company. Mm -hmm. So it was honestly a job change that got me really interested in corporate cultures and how managers can drive that culture down to a microscopic one-on-one level and how it can really lead to the success or failure of somebody. So it was out of that real personal experience that I got interested in leadership and in coaching. Yeah. So that's springboarded my career there. So, and you, and you mentioned coaching, and I know you have experience as an entrepreneur. So what are some of the things you've learned about really the needs of executives that you've coached? You know, everybody comes to coaching or to any kind of development for different reasons. Many, I would say the common denominators, though, have to do with how they can better get the business done by changing their human behavior. And one of the interesting things I've found in both coaching as well as leading a coaching practice 
is that no matter how powerful you are, no matter how many people report to you, all human beings are made of the same soft, squishy stuff inside. And uh, I'm constantly surprised at the number of really powerful leaders who have a blind spot, perhaps, to an area of their leadership or are honestly not thinking about or focusing on their leadership. And so it's, it's continuously surprising. But some of the trends we're seeing around that would be um, agility is one of those leadership skills that a lot of leaders do recognize that they need to have. Mm-hmm. Um, post-recession, we're moving very fast in the business world. Uh, in many cases, positions aren't fully filled. People are still doing the job. Two people are still doing the job of one. And so with that, you need to be able to focus and shift very quickly. So we often hear about agility. We often hear about communication. And it comes across when we are uh, doing our coaching intake, which is our process we follow to find out what needs to be done in coaching. And um, we, we joke that there might need to be a checkbox called bull in a china shop because we hear it so often. <laughs> right, and right. It's a, it seems to be such a common denominator that here's a great person. Here's a great leader. Uh, he's an amazing, um, amazing at achieving his goals. But and then some kind of behavior is coming out. And so a lot of times when we coach them. They are aware of it, but they're not necessarily aware of the impact it has on the people around them. Well, and I think people are very often forget that the behaviors that maybe help them get to where they are, precisely, you know, then suddenly are a problem. So being a bull in the china shop is a good thing when you're in sales or you're marketing or you're the VP, maybe you really have to, but then suddenly when you're in charge of the whole company. Exactly. And, and what's. What is still surprising today is that most of that learning that comes from making that transition from an individual contributor and what got you here won't get you there, most of that learning comes from on-the-job experience and success and failure. Uh, Organizations are still catching up to the needs of really being able to provide tools to their employees to allow them to develop themselves and to close Mm -hmm. those gaps and recognize those gaps themselves. So uh, more commonly than not, we find that most organizations are are still catching up to being able to support those leaders as they transition into a a leadership role. So after you you work on the the leaders, then you probably start to look at, at some level, how effective they're being, or at least their culture is being. So do you have maybe particular things that you look at to really uh, identify how effective a, a culture is being? Sure. Um, this is a, a, an especially interesting area for me, just based on some life experience that I've shared, as well as right now working for a company that I think has a really great culture. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to identifying those factors in the culture, really it, it has to do with paying attention to what makes people tick and what makes people come to work every day, which means you have some kind of communication channel into the workforce. Most often that's through something like an employee engagement survey or something less formal like a town hall meeting, Mm -hmm. but somehow you are keeping a pulse on the workforce. Uh, And it also means looking out to social media, combing through not just the traditional sites like LinkedIn and such to see what your employees are, are are bragging about with your organization, because rarely will they say anything negative on LinkedIn, but also checking Glassdoor and seeing what what are your employees saying about you anonymously. Mm-hmm. And having that pulse on the culture can really help you identify what's working and what needs to be fixed. So I think it does have to do with really having those communication channels in place. And, and do you find that, you know, as these uh, different leaders kind of go up uh, the food chain of sorts inside the company that that communication becomes a really issue for them i mean does it do they start off you know i, I kind of talk to certain people and they start off down the, at the bottom and, and they say oh, we want communication want communication and as they go up and suddenly now they're the leader of, of a group or of a division or maybe they're even the ceo suddenly i don't have time to communicate i don't have time they, they should know these things right i mean do, do, you, do you experience that very often Absolutely. Communication, I would say, is also a very common denominator that we see not only in coaching, but in, que- in requests for leadership development training. 
And it's an, it's an answer that requires a question because communication can mean so many different things. Mm-hmm. So as a person involves in an organization, their communication skills change drastically. You are no longer competing or communicating one, one-to-one. You're often communicating one-to-many. And it can be a very different skill set. When it comes to the culture and the leader's role in communicating the culture, it really has to do with that leader fully embracing and adopting the culture and then making sure that every every touch point of an employee experience reflects that culture. Yeah. So everything from how do you measure performance at the company needs to reflect the culture. Uh, Silicon Valley is paying a lot of attention to that th- these days. And one of the things that we've also noticed is companies try to differentiate the way they communicate. And so not just communicating verbally, not just communicating via email, not just, I mean, you have different groups of people. They tend to fall into particular age categories, but there are people who are outliers that go into different categories, but that want to digest that information in different ways. Right. You know, does the CEO write a, a blog that's just for the company that week? Does Do they send out an email? Do they do tweets? Do they text? Do they, you know, have them in a meeting setting or what have you? Or maybe hit try to hit people two times in two, you know, two different mediums to really make sure it's being effective. Um, because we have seen that you know companies say, well, we always do a, an email on Mondays or whatever, right? And then right. it's all this information. And you, well, but why aren't the millennials paying attention? Right, right, you know, exactly. Because they're not reading your email. <laughs> and and part of it too is uh, keeping a pulse on what's new. So yes, ten years ago, it may have been great for you to send an email every Monday morning. But within a few months, there was probably some other form of medium that was catching on that you you needed to pay attention to and communicate in. So part of it is not only getting in a cadence of what's worked in the past, but continuously evolving that means of communication and um, also paying attention to the cultural nuances. So uh, how can we best communicate with our, um, um, especially in global organizations, with our office in uh, another part of the world. And how do we do that in real time when we are 12 hours apart or 11 and a half hours apart? So it does become a big challenge in a virtual environment as well. Yeah, uh, for sure. And and not just when you're virtual and you're separated by time, but also separated by uh, you know, uh, specific cultural differences and language differences and, right. and things that already come in uh, that are completely different than what you're used to dealing with just from someone in, in maybe in a, in an office down the street from here. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you're, you, you certainly have talked a little bit about what you do with the CEOs or the leaders, but what, what do they do then to really work on talent development? What are some of the things that you're asking them to think about? in developing that next leader who's going to maybe fill in a position in a year or two within the organization? Sure. Uh, I would say most of the advice we're giving is to just get started. And it sounds rather funny, but uh, it is easy to get caught when it comes to developing a talent strategy. It's easy to get caught in paralysis through analysis. Mm -hmm. And we do find that many organizations... Uh, we talk to, they say, you know, we're thinking about this. We want to do, find out what our options are. Let's talk it through. We check back, back in with them a year, two, three, three years later. They're still thinking about it because it gets backburnered while the business happens. And yeah. so I would say the best advice we could give is get started somewhere. Look at one particular challenge that you haven't been able to solve so far and make that the focus as to why you will be developing your people. So find that hook in the business um, and not just develop people just for the sake of developing people. We all know that's great. We're in that industry. We can see the benefits. But it's important for business to integrate the development with the real business goals. Mm -hmm. So make the goal to get your product to market. Make the goal to get this new division going. Make the goal um, something that is tangible in the business in order to get it there. So I've got a great example. Uh, We worked with an organization with a group of physicians. And these physicians were 
uh, were told at the beginning of a leadership program to choose something that was really important to them, that was important to their jobs, that would solve something for the business of the hospital. And so one physician looked at this. She was a working mom, and she said, the wait time and every ER I've ever been to with my kids is way too long. So I'm going to do something about that, right? Who can identify with that? So here she was new to leadership. She was a great physician. She knew uh, everything there was to know about medicine, but had never been exposed to leadership. And so when she looked at the situation in her ER, she realized it wasn't just that the um, that they needed a new process. It was that the nurses were really comfortable doing things the way they were used to doing it. And the pharmacy really wanted to keep the way they, they were doing things. And the doctors the same way. And so she applied her leadership skills to get everybody behind a common vision of a reduced wait time. And so now, as a result, there is an ER in Central California that has a 15-minute wait time. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, when you have 15-minute wait time, kind of really does make a big business impact. And when you can tie your leadership training or leadership development back to a 15-minute wait time, that makes a pretty big impact. They don't even take my insurance card yeah. in the first 15 minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Well, uh, you know, I, certainly um, I think what you're saying is really smart because uh, we kind of go back to the original point of, of of the question that was just getting started and, and, and doing something it kind of reminds me of just like, you know, do something about it. Um, I remember when I used to do a lot of coaching, we used to tell the kids, even if we're doing the wrong thing, if we're all doing it together and we're all doing it, it's better than if everyone's trying to do their own thing. Precisely. And so I think you're right. If you just, if you just start doing something, do some sort of developments, pick some program, some, something to focus on, Right, because we probably spend a lot more time worrying about it and thinking about it and avoiding it and not really doing it, and then suddenly we have an issue. Exactly, exactly. We often find, you know, in the work in the companies I'm working in, when you get to be a big organization like over fifty thousand employees, then the the by nature those kinds of leadership decisions start to become a little decentralized yeah and so uh it becomes a um, there comes a point when the um the individual hr leaders and the hr business partners who are out in the business have great aspirations of doing things company-wide but they always have to accept that they just start in their business unit so we often end up just getting started in a business unit let's just work with this group and start a program start a pilot here and if it works maybe other groups will adopt it maybe they won't maybe it'll it'll never go to the entire enterprise but Mm -hmm. just get started and we'll make an impact in one business unit yeah, and do something, yeah, for exactly. sure. So I know this year you were honored by the California Diversity Council as one of the California's most influential and powerful women, so that's that's pretty amazing. Thank you. That, it was quite the honor. That's nice to have that little plaque hanging on your wall yeah. or, or whatever. That's, that, that's kind of cool. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the award and what it meant to be recognized in such a way. Sure. Uh, it was it was an incredible experience. Uh, I got to be among 17 women who received the award. Uh, I was probably the least educated out of all of them. There were more degrees than a thermometer in that room that day. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty incredible. All the so, acronyms just kept exactly, going on. Exactly. They on, just yeah. kept going on and on and on. And so it was, it was humbling and honoring um, and... Um, the, the California Diversity Council is an organization that uh, is part of the National Diversity Council, and they really focus on leadership issues and diversifying the leadership ranks of today's companies. And that diversification comes in the form of gender div- diversification. So they award this, uh, this award to about 15 to 20 women in California every year, and I was nominated and was absolutely thrilled to um, be part of this group, and uh, it was uh, quite the honor. Well, that's, again, congratulations. That's pretty amazing. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm wondering with all of the uh, different things that you do and the impact that you make on organizations, you must always be thinking about what's next and what's up top of mind. So you may have a wonderful answer for our favorite question for our guests, and that is, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? What I'm reading right now has to do with one of the biggest challenges I see in my own leadership skills. I'm an idea person. 
And I work best when I can surround myself with other people who can execute what I think are some really great ideas. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm improving in my my own leadership is that ability to be able to execute uh, those ideas myself. So I'm reading uh, a book by Sean Covey, who is Stephen Covey's son, youngest son, um, called The Four Disciplines of Execution. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of those you take in bite-sized pieces, take a little, go out and act on it. Um, but it's really great. It, it, it boils it down and boils down um, our everyday workload to what they call the whirlwind. And the whirlwind is created by a continuous stream of information coming at us. So when you're experiencing the whirlwind, how do you as a leader focus on that and break through the whirlwind? And it, it really comes down to four simple points of focusing on the wildly important, acting on the lead measures, keeping a compelling scorecard of those measures, and then creating a, ca- a cadence of accountability. Mm-hmm. And so we're implementing some of those ideas in, in our organization right now, which has been kind of fun to be a part of. Um, but it's certainly an area of personal interest, too. When I, I heard about the whirlwind, I, I could certainly nod and, and identify oh, with yeah. it. Oh, yeah. I can yeah. identify with right, that one. Right, right. Are we always in a whirlwind at all moments in exactly. time? Exactly. it feels like, yeah. And I love the one, you know, you identify things that are most important. We have lots of different examples. There's the rock, pebble, right. sand one. And uh-huh. I'm, I, we've even tried to take that one even farther down it's not just what's important but what's most important and will also generate revenue exactly (laughs) exactly well and that comes to identifying your wildly important goals you know if the wildly important goal has revenue in it then that helps you to then choose what to say yes to Mm -hmm. you know i think one of the um, most important things that people are really learning right now in business is what to say no to Mm -hmm. because we're not necessarily trained in a a service culture to say no and it becomes a challenge because you do have to in order to accomplish your wildly important goals you do have to gently say no to things that don't fall in that category yeah one of my favorite books is uh, by jim camp is uh, start with no ah yes and that's it's a great it kind of just almost it's it's a negotiation book, but it really does empower you to really uh-huh. think about what saying no means, and and how to think about that, and how and how freeing it can be to kind of like realize that you can start practicing that, you know, to say no, or you can say no, but this is what I need, or, or what have you. Because yeah, I think socially we're we're really programmed to say yes or to avoid those confrontations. I mean, we don't we don't haggle and barter here, right. you know, typically like they, you may in other parts of the world, and so. You know, saying no and, and is not something that comes now. That's for kids, but as mm-hmm. adults, it's somehow been beaten out of us. Exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> we're we're taught to share, which includes sharing our time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it does. It makes people a little squirmy when it comes to saying no. But it's it's an important thing to do in order to again focus on what's wildly important. Yeah, it took it took a while for my wife to be on board with this, and my, she would want to get really upset with the kids for coming to me and then going to her and uh-huh. trying. I said, no, that's a good skill. They're trying to get what they want. You and I just need to make sure we stay on the same page so they don't you know circumvent us but i don't want to squash that out of them they they, you know they want something keep figuring out a way to get it you know exactly you're raising (laughs) some brilliant negotiators well we'll see but yeah (laughs) well uh really appreciate you uh coming and and being a part of our show and uh, lending us your your radio skills as well as your other talents and uh really giving us a better understanding about your company well, thank you. It was a delight, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it was a great pleasure. So, uh, again, thank you to my uh, guests today for being on the show, Brian uh, Arandez and also Jeannie Shad. Next week, we will welcome Julie Cook, the uh, president of Easy on Hold, and Bob Richardson, the uh, president and CEO of uh, Extend Credit. So uh, tune in at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time uh, here on OC Talk Radio. And until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2. 